You're listening to Film School, the on-air online source for independent film, film that's changing the way we look at cinema and the world. I'm Nathan Callahan. I'm Mike Caspar. Today we'll be speaking with Don Argot, the director of The Art of the Steel, a documentary that chronicles the struggle for control of the Barnes Foundation, a private collection of post-impressionist and early modern art valued at more than $25 billion dollars. You can listen to this interview as well as interviews with Haskell Wexler, Harmony Kareen, Albert Mazels, John Sayles, John Turturro, Guy Madden, Philip Glass, Frederick Wiseman, and many more online at filmschoolradio.com. And I got to tell you, I really enjoyed this uh, documentary. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a fine documentary. And what it, what it looks into, like we said before in the previous hour, uh, looking into a legacy as opposed to uh, a, a brand, yeah, and they're they're taking something uh, which was uh, Albert Barnes's collection yeah. of art. Yeah, uh, he put this in a, uh, a a collection. Well, actually, he went out in in Europe yeah. in the twenties, collected some of the greatest artworks ever that weren't even being recognized. Right. Yet. If you saw the Barnes, some of the works in the Barnes collection, you would just say, "Oh my God, these are all in one room." I know. And he just hung them in a room in in a beautiful little. Uh, uh, Space, I yeah. guess you'd say, but yeah. it almost looks like a home rather yeah. than a museum. We're not talking white walls here yeah. where paintings are 20 feet apart. Yeah. We're talking about clusters of paintings yeah. hung next to African sculpture, sculptures and door locks and door yeah. hinges. And it, it just, you know, the door hinges hung on the wall yeah. because they're such beautiful, ornate works of art. And, and it was absolutely a gorgeous uh, collection in a perfect place for it. There, there is a point in the film where, where one of the uh, the uh, commentators, one of the people, were talking about a woman who had taken down uh, a Van Gogh off the wall because they were moving it for whatever mm-hmm. reason, cleaning it. I don't know. Yeah. And she she walked with it for a few feet, and then she sat down and she started crying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> the experience overloaded her. She had been a student of art, and and she <laughs> would never get that experience in in uh, you know the. Uh, MoCA or any of the other no. museums of modern art, she had to go to the Barnes Foundation where they valued it. Was Don Foundation was considered an educational institution right. where the public could visit uh, two or three days a week. We'll be back with Don Argot. The film is The Art of the Steel. You know, this is a story which should have been told as it went along. It is the greatest act of cultural vandalism since World War II. It's been a circus. And we couldn't take the paintings up to heaven with them or hell or wherever the heck he wound up. The name of the game is if you're going to leave your painting somewhere, don't let there be a politician within 500 yards. It's America's treasure to be untainted by these attacks. Culture has become big business. Culture is an industry. There's a culture industry that requires new product. This is about humanity, but you can't put dollar signs on that. I mean, obviously, you, you destroy something fragile when you do that. It's an example of something that's happening all across the society, and this is just one nice little um, microcosm that we can look at carefully. 
no one knows this story. This is a hidden story, and it's a big, big scandal. This is the scandal of the art world in, in modern America. In his new documentary, The Art of the Steel, our guest today, director Don Argot, looks into the world of political power and artistic expression, focusing on the non-profit profit corporate takeover of the Barnes Foundation, the $25 billion art collection. Argot previous documentaries include Rock School and Two Days in April. Don Argot, welcome to Film School. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm uh, in Chicago and uh, about ready to head out to Boston in a little while for another screening there. So I've been uh, on a, not a world tour, but I guess a, a U.S. tour so now, far of the film. How has the film, how has the, uh, the Art of the Steel been uh, received in uh, Chicago? Uh, the the screening last night, it was a special screening, part of the uh, Chicago Film Festival. It went really well. Um, really great um, you know, Q&A afterwards, and, you know, people people have a lot of questions, and I think that's what's great about the film is it is it, it, it brings up a lot of, um, you know, issues. It doesn't necessarily answer every question, but I, I think it gets this uh, really important dialogue going, which uh, which I think is, is, you know, all you can ask for. Right. Would you categorize it as a controversial film? Uh, yeah, I yeah. think that's uh, <laughs> fair to say. All right. <laughs> well, just, uh, Don, I'm just curious. Is there a line of questioning or a, or a particular uh, uh, area that that people have been asking you more about than than you expected to be asked? Yeah, you know, you know, I think it's interesting is that, you know, for the for the most part, a lot of people that are, are seeing the film for the first time, you know, not a lot of people uh, know about the story. Uh, and I think that they're entering into it from, you know, a pretty fresh um you know, perspective, but I think specifically in Philadelphia, you know, we were always concerned, not concerned, but, you know, uh, curious to see what the audience reaction was going to be there, because obviously, just like, you know, in Chicago, and I'm sure any other major city in the world, there's there's this kind of like back backyard story that, you know, the people seem to know a lot about and have been following it for, for a number of years, and, you know, this is Philadelphia's, and uh, I think a lot of audiences uh, come into this film with baggage, which you know is fine. There's nothing you can do about that, and and I think uh, it's interesting to see how people reconcile that when they find information out that m they might not know or, or uh, find more information about uh, a situation in you know in, within the story that they thought they knew. You know, it challenges them, and uh, and it's it's interesting to see uh, the reaction. And I think it's been it's kind of pretty much run the gamut. Uh, people that have been uh, pleasantly surprised by you know, I've heard in Q and A's specifically in Philly that say, you know, I thought I knew the story, but I, but I don't. And then other people say, you know, you got it wrong, and that you know that's not right, and that's that's not how I know it. And it's just interesting how people have their own. Uh, you know, this is it's it's a very polarizing uh, story, and it's and it's and it's a very fascinating story to me. And I you know I came into it with with really no uh, bias or agenda or anything. I you know it was for me it was just coming into the story and trying to tell it as effectively as we possibly could, and I and I think that's that's what we did. Well, let's go back a little bit into the background of the film. Uh, to me, this the star of the film, if you were going to 
find a star in such a documentary would be the art collection itself. Uh, yeah. This is uh, by, uh, collected by Albert Barnes in the early part of the uh, the 20th century. And, yes. And he, he got, came into his money through uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, mm-hmm. He, he, he uh, parlayed that into an extraordinarily uh, extraordinary art collection. We're, we're talking Renoir, Cezanne, Matisse, and there are... What, uh, 60, uh, 59 Matisse, 69 Cezanne's, 181 Renoir's, 46 Picasso's, and these are great works, too. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's wonderful the the way uh, you brought on the art critic right at the beginning of the film. Simply the concentration of the work of these particular masters is unrivaled. The Louvre doesn't have it. The Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum, they don't have it. If you've been to any other museum, you're used to walking in and seeing these white walls and, and these paintings hung up. You know, it's like a shopping experience. Barnes wasn't interested in a mass experience. He was interested in a quality experience. The rooms are intimate. They're not made to accommodate industrial strength, Smithsonian-sized crowds. It's a completely different way of understanding a work of art and one's experience of a work of art. We see this collection with a very interesting personality stamped on it. The Barnes Foundation is the single most important American cultural monument of the first half of the 20th century. From an arts and cultural point of view, it is not a little place. It's an absolutely essential, critical, earth-shakingly important place. To, to, to uh, explain that, tell, talk a little bit about just how, how wonderful this collection is and, and you know how it came to be. I, you know, I, it is, and you know, aside from the the art being the star, I also you know think and hope that the star of the film is Albert Barnes, yes, uh, because he was somebody that has really gotten forgotten uh, in in this whole story, the kind of uh, you know more. Um, you know, as it went on in the years, you know, it became easier and easier for, for people to just forget about the the fact that this was a real guy that actually collected this art and had an amazing eye and was collecting his contemporaries, uh, which, you know, at the time, and, and we do it now in, in this day and age where, you know, people collect uh, modern art, you know, and you really have to have a gift for what you feel is good and, and, and um, you know, I'm not somebody who has, you know, necessarily an art background in terms of um, painting, but, you know, he, there's what he amassed in a collection is nothing short of, uh, you know, spectacular. And the first time I visited the foundation, which was uh, prior to, you know, agreeing to make the film, uh, I was, you know, I was, you know, awestruck by it. I got chills. I mean, you walk in the main gallery of, of the Barnes Foundation, and it's it's indescribable. Yeah. The, the feeling that you get there is, is it's, it's just overwhelming. It kind of just something about it like overtakes you. And to me, at that point, I understood what was at stake in terms of it moving. And in that, all that being said, I was still willing to hear all sides of, of, of the argument. And 
I think I've been, you know, unfairly uh, criticized, and the film has been unfairly criticized by being one-sided. Well, it's been one-sided because the, the other side made it that way, they could, because they refused to participate. So it's convenient for them now to say it's one-sided. Um, they just didn't want to talk, uh, you know, about the controversy. They didn't want to bring this up. They they were more concerned about, you know, uh, you know, moving the art and and saying that that's, you know, the mission was the move and all these other things. And they just, you know, they didn't want to engage in this dialogue and now they're kind of being forced to so you know it's good to be underestimated um and, and you know i'm glad that that finally people are getting to see uh not not just the the film and the story but you know th- this is such an important place and i couldn't believe i lived in philadelphia for 15 years and i didn't know about this how is it possible that with the the, the breadth of the work that is in there that somehow it's not mentioned in the same breath as the Liberty Bell, the art museum. When you think of Philadelphia and Philadelphia tourism, just like you think of every, uh, you know, every city's got their, you know, their kind of uh, litany of things that they're known for. How how is it possible that they it's, they're not known for this? You know that you're, they're not known for the Barnes Foundation. It just it was it was unbelievable to me that I had never heard about this place uh, for the 15 years that I lived there. Uh, we're speaking with Don Argot. The film is. The Art of the Steel, right? I, I, I want to go into the story a little bit. I think our, our audience should hear. Uh, we, we, we know just a, a little bit about Albert uh, Barnes so far as in our discussion um, and how he did collect this. But we need to, I think, follow the thread a little bit further in that the, uh, the relationship or lack of relationship with the powerful people of Philadelphia that Barnes uh, uh, endured during his time. Mm-hmm. Um, let, sure. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, you know, he made very powerful enemies early on. I mean, he's, you know, he's somebody who, uh, who was very wealthy. And, you know, I think that he had a difference of opinion in uh, how he saw the world. I mean, it's no different than, than in today's, you know, day and age where, you know, you have Republicans and Democrats and people that are, uh, you know, left wing, right wing. And I, and I think Barnes uh, was, you know, a New Deal Democrat. And some of the people that he viewed as his, quote unquote, enemies were, you know, kind of right-wing Republicans. And so that that, same, that kind of uh, disdain in point of view and how you see the world was just, you know, uh, you know, magnified by the sense that, you know, he was very powerful and he was um, up against also very powerful people. And they didn't like being told that they couldn't come and see um, – you know, his artwork. And I think that created a very long standing, you know, kind of grudge against him versus the Philadelphia establishment. And, you know, I always find it, 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 funny that people that do have money, you know, they do feel privileged and they, they don't want to be told that they can't get into places, even today. I mean, oh, even yeah. in, in this day and age. So, I mean, that's that's really the start of it. And, and uh, you know, ironically, the very same people that are in control of the foundation now are, are the, the same people that he despised when he was alive. What? And uh, that, that same type of, of you know, stat, you know, elitist art establishment that that is uh kind of in control of of the foundation now is uh, you know the same people that you he would he wouldn't let into his foundation you know when he was alive well the, the, there's a there's a little bit of a uh, context here in that uh when barnes began to show the work that he had been uh, collecting 
the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was run by, was it Moses and Walter? Moses. Moses. Well, Moses, yeah. Moses started it and and, And Walter Walter ran it. Yeah, Yeah, Walter Annenberg. And they're they're critic. Annenberg is the key word here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, (laughs) Annenberg (laughs) is the key. Uh, and they, they're, uh, they're critics, and, and, and I assume as well Walter and Moses thought that this uh, was uh, art that wasn't really uh, worthy of the attention that, uh, that right. uh, obviously Albert Barnes thought it was. So this right. started this – this added this layer of personal animus, this patina of real hatred for one another that fueled right. – I, I believe fueled so much of what has happened. And, I, and putting that aside for just a second, these people would have coveted this collection – whether or not they liked Albert Barnes or disliked him or not, they they eventually once they realized that they couldn't get it, it also probably exacerbated this drive to get get it under their no control. question, yeah. no question, and and that's what's so great about the story is that from from you know a, a pure story perspective, you have these like long standing um, relationships that really come into play. I mean, there, there's no there's no question that when Albert Barnes was alive, he made these some very powerful enemies, you know, with the newspaper, you know, with the Philadelphia establishment, and these and those uh, relationships that were damaged then came back to really haunt uh, Barnes. In the Barnes Foundation, you know, long after he was dead, and 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 I, I have to, I have to think, and I, you know, you, you would be hard pressed to feel otherwise that if Albert Barnes and Walter Annenberg and the Philadelphia establishment lived in perfect harmony, uh, and everybody was really nice to each other, I just can't imagine that what's going on today would be going on. I just, I just don't see that. I, I can't help but think, uh, during this, in, in watching your your film, that that Barnes was overly bitter, that he had been proven right in his taste. It, it mm-hmm. was like, you know, he, he presented something to a group of people who were not prepared. They, their education or whatever it was, they were not prepared to see the beauty of the art that was presented to them. And, right. w- and when they finally realized, for whatever reason, I think it was more to do with that these works of art were selling for millions of dollars rather than they actually saw the beauty in it. But when they realized the value of the art, um, it, it, there was an opportunity there, I think, for, for Barnes. And in, it happens in life all the time. There's an opportunity sure. for someone to say, well... Okay, you didn't see it. Now you do, and uh, let's be friends. What, yeah, what, right. Let's hug it out. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but 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 do you th- do you think Barnes? Do you think Barnes always to to his dying days saw them as Philistines? That there was that they were sort of they had they were uh, they were uneducated uh, in the art world, but they had money and felt bitterly disappointed yeah, I, about. I, I, Absolutely. I think that's exactly, I mean, I think that's exactly how he felt. And, you know, Barnes was a really, he's a difficult character. And, you know, I'm not someone who is, uh, I don't want to come across as saying everything that Barnes did was amazing and he was a great guy. And he was, you know, by all accounts, he was a curmudgeon-y guy and, you know, had his own ideas and was very opinionated and was, you know, probably somebody who, you know, could be really crabby and, and, uh, and be set off really quickly with his temper. Uh, all that being said, 
he was a serious guy, and what yeah. he was doing, he thought of as as very serious. And I think to this day, you can find people, um, you can categorize people in in these same kind of categories. Is is the the people that look at the world and see the you know the beauty in it, and then there's people in the world that see you know the how they can exploit it and 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 uh, make money off of it. And I think that it's this idea of Albert Barnes was looking at this not as I have a hundred and you know, 81 Renoirs, whatever it is, yeah. and they're worth all this money. He was saying, I have all this amazing, beautiful paintings that I want to use as an educational tool uh, to further what I think is important about, you know, my educational philosophy, which he did with, with John Dewey. And yes. then people on the museum side say, you have all this painting that's worth all this money. So he didn't necessarily care that it was worth all that money. He actually went... Um, and has paintings by major artists that he thought were flawed, and that's why he bought them because he wanted to use them as an example in his in his educational philosophy, and and saying this is uh, a really great Matisse, and this is a lesser Matisse, and let's discuss why this Matisse is this way, and and this one is this way, and so that it was more about the educational philosophy than it was about. Uh, parking money like people buy art now, you know they par- they buy art as an investment, you know, and and it just so happens that he collected some of this, uh, you know, this amazing artwork, and it became, uh, it was, it became what it is now worth all this money. But at the time, you know, it wasn't, and you know, it's just like everything else. And and uh, you know, after years and that go by and taste change, all of a sudden it's oh now that you know this this is important now, you know, but it wasn't important when the guy was was alive and, and you know the, that's the 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 curse of the artist you know that most artists are you know uh, die poor because you know yeah. no one cares about them when they're alive and, and and creating work they only care you know 20 years after they're dead and someone says they're important you know yeah, yeah and another, this one I get into another element here too the the hinge of this documentary is is the will the will mm-hmm. that the the Barnes w- wanted to keep the the artwork in one place. He wanted to use it for exactly what you just said for educational purposes. He had s- set up this this perfect, uh, w- at least as far as I can see, uh, way of exhibiting the art so that people could contemplate it and 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 learn uh, profound lessons from the art. Uh, right. And then uh, over the course after his death. And 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 through just an incredible series of unfortunate events, uh, <laughs> that that will is is completely corrupted. And uh, as it stands right now, it looks like everything that Barnes wanted to have uh, with his art is has been destroyed, and it's, right. it's gone to a completely different location in a in nearly a completely. Uh, different context. Although I got to yeah, say, no I, I'm, I'm going on here a little bit. I did, I did happen to see uh, how the architects are trying to mimic the the original, uh, the building the and, and the layout and the rooms of it. And and it seems like the architects are are those people caught in the you know in the rock and the hard place. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty guilt-ridden design, honestly. Like they, yeah. you know, they they can't really go 
full steam ahead with any kind of real architectural, you know, uh, creativity because they're being bound by these, you know, guilt, really. Um, you know, if the, the, my whole thing is if they're going to move it, like the whole idea of arranging it the same way and trying to keep the integrity of what it, what it is, is is so disingenuous. Yeah. Uh, they might as well just turn it into another art museum and, and just let it be that. I mean, the fact that they're saying, you know, the whole point of moving it is that they can't make it work where it is and it's too small, but yet they're going to try to replicate the galleries and this, it's, it's so, you know, again, it, it's, it's all riddled with guilt. It's, it's, uh, it's astounding. Well, but, uh, go ahead. Oh, I'm so. No, I'm sorry, Don. Uh, I was just going to say we're speaking with Don Argot. The uh, the film is the Art of the Steel. Just to your point, the the uh, that they the whole idea of of the the, the uh, Barnes' idea of creating this educational institution is so antithetical to where it's going to end up that there's no right. way you can move this and maintain the integrity yeah. of what it, of what it is that they were trying to portray. Uh, and and that's really and that's what's at stake because I think that you know for for my point of view it, you know in terms of how I feel about you know about this move is that what what people are really losing is that really intimate experience that the barns can give you it it's not about uh, being a art museum, it's not about having you know uh, you know blockbuster shows. It's the like you said, it's the antithesis of the art museums. And there's nothing wrong with art museums. Art the Philadelphia Museum of Art is a world class art museum. It's great. You know they have blockbuster shows there. They have great exhibits. You know there's something there's a place in our culture for that. But why can't there also be a place in our culture for you know a ten minute um, drive into the suburbs to see, to have this other experience that's not the art museum experience, yeah. and that's that's what's so gross about the whole thing, honestly. Well, the film does a terrific job of puncturing all of the arguments as to why they had to move it, how they, the, the the whole thing with the uh, um, foundation, the well, few, well, few charitable trust, yeah, public no, nobody trust. Nobody spoke up for the there's, other side. Uh, very few people spoke up for the uh, other side. There's just so many great yeah. characters. I know we're running very short on time here, but so many great characters in this film, uh, and, and many of whom, on the as you put it, the other side refused to speak with you. Uh, but, they, but the way your film lays out the arguments, and you just really – uh, by virtue of the facts, pull all these things apart. I want to single out one person I think is particularly egregious uh -oh. in all of this. No. And I think that uh, – I want to make sure I get it right. Judge Stanley Ott, am I got that right? Uh -huh. I think yes. that given no. what he knew, whether or not it was the letter of the law to revisit this or whether these people had standing, he certainly had every opportunity and all the facts in front of him knowing full well that this was really a heist. This was an mm -hmm. art heist going in process, sure. and he sure. did nothing about it. At the that was really infuriating to me personally. At the end of this film, yeah. Uh, well, this, it'll be interesting to see if he gets a higher appointment as you know, yeah, he, within the city of uh, Philadelphia. Well, yeah. you know, yeah. a, a federal court, a higher court. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that, that the, may happen. Yeah. Don, this is a terrific film. I really enjoyed it a lot. Not only is it a great story, but it's put together very well, very creative Thank editing you. and graphics and, yeah. and, and music. You use a lot of Philip Glass, which I never have a problem <laughs> with. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think you just did a wonderful job, and uh, you should be. Thank uh, you so uh, much. And it is opening. It's coming to Los Angeles. Uh, we, we'll, we'll get later on into the actual dates here, but uh, 
It's coming. Yeah, March 12th. I believe it opens uh, at the Landmark Theater in Los Angeles and at the Lemley Sunset Five in Los Angeles on the March 12th. What? So, and are you going to be uh, uh, coming out with it uh, to yes. Los Angeles? Yeah, we're going to be out that we're going to be out that week uh, doing some some more press, and we'll be there for opening weekend to uh, do some Q and A's over the weekend, and you know, hopefully, uh, you know. Keep the momentum going. Right. Uh, we opened in uh, Philadelphia, New York, uh, last uh, this past weekend, and it did really well. And we're just hoping to keep everything moving and get the story out there. And and uh, you know that's it's just a, a pretty exciting time. You know, right. you make a film in a in a dark room. You, you can only hope that we uh, get <laughs> yeah. to this point. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're sharing it to audiences around the country. Well, All you right. only you only hope that a lot of people sitting in dark rooms like it as much as as we did. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, Off thank to you. Boston. Have a good time there. It's wonderful. <laughs> having you on our show today. The film is The Art of the Steel. Don Argot, thanks for being a part of Film School. Thanks for having me, guys. For more information about Film School, upcoming guests, and archived interviews, go to filmschoolradio.com.